0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Robert Hollis. Now, this is a really wide-ranging interview as we find out all about his childhood and and some of the influences that have shaped him. And while we touch on some of his entrepreneurial journey, it was really more about who he is as a person that fascinated me. So we go a bit deeper to try to understand what is it from his history that has led him to overcome many different challenges? Rebet's someone who's a bit of an enigma because he gave up being a professional snowboarder in order to dive into business. But once you start talking with him, you realize that he's always been in the minority, and it's people telling him what he can't do, which has really motivated him. We also talk about Ta'o Maudi and a more holistic view of the world, and what does it mean to do good, particularly in a business context. I know you're going to enjoy this interview, and if you do, then why not check out the 260 other interviews that are in the back catalog. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz, as well as the link to Robert's website. So make sure to check that out as well. Now let's get into this interview. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Robert Hollis to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Hey, okay, I appreciate the time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this because you're involved in a lot of different things. I knew you were multiple hats. Um, and so I'm excited to hear about some of the things that you've done in the past. And also some of the things you're doing today, but what i love to do with people is really um, get a little bit below the surface find out about their journeys, and to do that we jump in a time machine and go back to say when you were four or five years old, like take us right back in time, what was life like for you, Um, where were you living and yeah tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, so my whanau my is from Ngāti Parāo, East Coast Gisborne, um, and I grew up on a farm actually until I was about four years old, four or five years old. So my first uh, memories was actually on a farm in Darkville, way up north, um, and then moved to Fiji right when I was four or five years old. So um, from farm to, to the beach, that was kind of the, the start point. So pretty rural upbringing, had, you know, horses, cows, sheep, and all, all that stuff. And then shifting over to um, Fiji kind of changed the game a little bit as well, just because you know, but it gives you perspective on on life a lot quicker. You know, like I remember pretty clearly, we were um, the levels of wealth in my class were, you know, if you had a concrete house or if you had a tin house, and we had a concrete house, so we were considered rich, or if we had leather sandals, not plastic sandals, or no sandals. You know, so um, I, I got perspective pretty early on. Um, but basically, at you know four or five years old, I was already you know charging around and up to all sorts of mischief. So I wrote my first car off actually when I was four years old as well, took my, my papa's car, started up, sent it off a cliff. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. so I've been uh, causing, causing mischief for more, more, than a, more than a few decades now. That's awesome. And the thing that
0: I love about learning about you is it, it seems like you have a real heart for people and helping others. And I'm just wondering to what extent does that even trace back to those earliest times in Fiji You know, like it, it, because it's a very different culture. It's a different way of being. Um, Do you think there was influence on you from that young age at that point?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, my my dad was working for a um, like a Habitat for Humanity type business, and so we were helping build um, you know affordable housing and getting clean water to sort of rural villages and stuff. So some of my first memories were, you know, literally out in these. these little communities and and tribes that had no um, no power and you know we we're helping you know do the housing stuff for them and getting mm-hmm. getting fresh water in there and you know those um, first early memories always were very much a, a pretty key point and my mum's always had a pretty um big uh, you know interest in that so she, even t- still today she still works with like you know women's refuge and Salvation Army and she's um, been a, a teacher and help out with nurse aiding and and all sorts so very much like kind of from the caring side. Um, and then just yeah kind of growing up through all that you know you get perspective at a at an early age and you kind of see things a bit differently and I think probably just being like grateful you know as well because I mean regardless of what I do now people kind of know where I've come from it's not like um, you know I've just popped up with a silver spoon in my mouth you know like I remember you know we talked about I used to live in a rented out a friend's um, bathroom for a winter with no heating, paid 40 bucks a week, chucked all my, my gear in in the bathtub, put a little foam mattress down on the ground, closed the door next to the toilet in the sink. And that was me, you know? So, you know, growing up in Aranui, going through the journey that I've sort of been through, anything good or crazy that happens now, everyone knows exactly where I've come from. And I think that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Cause it's definitely like authentic to me. And I, I don't think it's possible to be able to, um, I think it'd be disrespectful to my past to not to be able to, you know, like happily claim that and be proud of that whole journey, because, you know, it, it, for me anyway, it's the older I get, the the more crazy of a journey I, I think it's, um, I, I really think it's been. Mm.
0: That's, a, that, that's a good insight. Sometimes when I ask people questions, one of the classic questions would be, what would you change about your past? You know, what would you tell your younger self? But actually it's going through those experiences, isn't it, that actually, gives you the wisdom to become who you become. And I think if I told myself what I know now when I was 18, I probably wouldn't have listened to myself, firstly. Um, but also I had to go through those things to be able to shape me mm. into who I am today. Um, just coming back to that early childhood, I'm I'm really curious. How, how long were you there in Fiji for? Like, was it several years? How, you know, it, it, these are conscious memories,
1: aren't they? It, it's an actual. Thing. No, totally. Yeah. Yeah, so I I totally remember growing up on a farm, in and then um, we we're in Fiji until I was um eight eight years old. So four okay. four five years, and then we moved back to Christchurch and moved down to Aranui. That's where I grew um sort of was basically grew up till I finished high school. Um, so my 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 business, Aranui Ventures, is named from where I'm from. You know, everything that I, I represent is definitely from from there. So um, it, you know, it's it, it's tricky because you get quite transient. You know, you're you your, your from the east coast and then you're on a farm up north and then you're on a beach in Fiji and then you're in Aranoi Christchurch and then you go into Snowboard World and then you travel around you know like I so when people say you know where is home I've got so many homes you know and, and like genuine homes you know like my my my, my soul sits in um, uh, Waipiro Bay east coast Gisborne you know my um, my early mem- memories and my you know my my great I was named after my grandparents Ron and Betty and so that's my first childhood up in the farm you know Fiji became that foundation I don't know became my core then you know crush and then um, when I got into Snowboard World Wanaka was basically the beating heart of everything living and breathing out of there you know and then I m- moved to Auckland for the business stuff and I wouldn't say Auckland uh, out of all of the places I would definitely would say Auckland's not home home as such you know that I was I, I've lived there, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it home. And then in the states, you know, now I've been um, back and forth the last twenty years. So Tahoe's also home, and then my wife's family's from San Fran, so that's also home. Um, so you know, my um, if I was to die tomorrow, my ashes would get spread and probably a few different places. I'd, I'd imagine. But yeah. I, I th- actually think that w- when you when you have the perspective of lots of different lives and worlds, it gives you a way a sort of broader approach to how you you know look at things in life you know because you've got to see so many different lenses or so many different angles of 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 stuff and so it's probably one of the the best thing and also being able to travel the world and meet a million people and all sorts of stuff has been probably pretty rad but um yeah it's very transient but at the same time very um yeah sporadically localized Mm.
0: it's fascinating the concept of home isn't it as well because you know, home is where the heart is, like there's these proverbs that come out. Um, for me, I'm similar. I have an accent, but I'm actually speaking to you from Otatahi Christchurch because I grew up here as well. Um, and this, mm. this is where I feel most at home. And it's a strange thing, but I feel like in Christchurch, if somebody says, let's meet here, I can get there without telling you the street names. I, I just get there. Um, whereas in other cities I'd be like, Oh, well, how do I, what's the best way? Whereas here, I feel so comfortable. I get it. Yeah. You, you just go, we got to go to Cal stadium, play some basketball. I know how to get there, you know? And, and, um, for me, that's a really significant thing. Cause I, like you, I've traveled a bit. I've lived in six different countries and in those other places, it's, um, it's been about the people in those places for me. Um, Yeah. Mm. So growing up in Christchurch in Aotearoa, can you just describe what that was like? Yeah, What was that environment? And um, yeah, so you're eight years old. Yeah, was so it a difficult eight, transition nine, um, back? Was it hard to come back to a, a, a country that was supposedly your home, but you'd actually grown up in Fiji until then?
1: Well, it was definitely colder, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> I think probably just the... The interesting one with Nui for me was more um maybe tension's probably not the word, but I I've always sort of lived this dichotomy of this kind of this um this balance, right? So, you know, I talked about when I was um, you know, growing up on a farm and up uh, what far north, I was kind of like a token Māori kid and a bunch of white boys and I go to Fiji, and even though I'm Māori, I'm considered probably white compared to Fijian and Indians. And then I come back to Atenui Christchurch and then in Christchurch, you're kind of surrounded by a whole bunch of white boys again. So then you're kind of there. And then I go into Snowboard World and it's predominantly rich Pakeha and I'm poor Maori kid. And then I come into business world and it's, you know, corporates and suits and boardrooms and all sorts of crazy shit. And then here I am with my like $7 t-shirt on and and kick. So I kind of have always sort of had this funky balance with, um, with my, my place and things. I don't know whether it's, maybe that's part of my combat, my combative nature as well. Cause it's basically, mm. you know, it, it's, it makes it harder when there's more in front of you, you know? And I think for me anyway, m- my journey is I, I like winning the battle. That's harder because then it's not only a better story to tell, but no one can question that journey when they know how tough it's been. So, you know, I don't know for me, um, it was definitely tough. I mean it wasn't wasn't easy. Um, you know, it's if you don't know Christchurch, you know, it's the low socioeconomic area of town. It's far east. Um my dad, when I was, you know, 11 years old, he had a double brain hemorrhage and he went back to the brain capacity of a six-year-old. So, you know, home was not not easy, not good, not safe at times. Um, we we're on the yeah. benefit, um, you know, went through all that. And then, you know, when we were, I was 15, then my dad passed away. Um, when we were, I was on New Year's Eve, we were on a family trip up north and the, we got in a car crash and it was horrible, you know? So th- then I just think of myself in that time, you know, I'm 15 years old, dad's just passed away, we're in the benefit, I'm failing high school, you know, my careers advisor then tells me that I can, you know, work in a warehouse packing boxes. That's what they said I could do with my life. And I'm like, well, I've got nothing wrong with that's it. what you did to bake bread. I just had a full issue where that was the kind of the limit of what they were saying I could do with my life. And I was just like, stuff you, you know, stuff you. And so I just turned that into fuel. You know, I turned that entire um, moment that gave me fuel for the next 10, 15 years to get me out of there. And that's exactly what I did. So, you know, um, I eventually got a um, offered a scholarship actually after my dad passed away to go to Christ College. And I thought it was for sport, but it was actually for kids whose um, dads had actually died, and they didn't tell me that. They lied to me about it, and I chose to stay at know. I chose to stay with my boys. <laughs> I chose to stay <laughs> with my crew, and I was like, "Stuff that! Like I, I ain't leaving, you know." And they, they're my boys, and still my boys to today. Um, and that was basically it. So you know love that page that's part of the reason or the main reason i, I named my company i don't know adventures named after where i was from and yeah. so i wanted um it to be as a statement of like you can do it you can get out there and do different you can push you can strive you can do whatever and so that's been that's been my um my journey And you know it's definitely come at, at a toll of being insanely competitive and competitive towards stuff if i'm passionate about it mm. but net net i don't really regret any of it because it's got me here and so stuff it, you know?
0: Yeah. So I'm interested in two things that I'm going to pick up on it. The, the first one is just that conversation where you were told this is all you'll ever be able to do. For some people, they would have reacted in a different way and just accepted it, I guess, and gone, oh, well, that's all that I can do. What is it in your nature, do you think, that, that caused you to react in the opposite way, which is, well, I'm going to prove you wrong? Because um, it sounds like in each of the circumstances you've described, You've been in the minority, you know. You've been the always. one, who's always. always in the minority. So you've kind of grown up with that, you know, having to prove yourself in a way. Um, but yep. do you think that was that the source of that, or yeah? Just talk us through that. Well, it's
1: for forever the under. Yeah, it's forever the underdog, right? Like I, yeah. I knew that they weren't going to give me it, so I was just going to take it, like stuff them. Like yeah. you're not, and because I'd been super competitive at sport. Like you need to understand as well, like my, my, my drive for going hard is pretty different to most, you know, like I was walking when I was nine months old, just full walking. <laughs> like I'm was just sending it and going at 110% when I was, you know, 11 years old, I was playing for the New Zealand under 14 basketball team. So I was three years ahead of my age at 11. And I was like the smallest in the group played basketball, played soccer for New Zealand, gone to the national reps for soccer, skated, got third at nationals, you know, like all anything i'd go into i'll just go insanely hard and go and dominate and so when basically someone said this is all you can do in my head i'm like well now you've just given me fuel and thanks for that and you know i'll see you in the future and i just kind of said stuff you and just went and did my thing and so you know like i i so I went hard and I, you know, I became a professional snowboarder. And I traveled the world and ranked number one in New Zealand and I won a silver medal at the world final. So, you know, like I, I went to the pinnacle of, of that as well, but f- for me, it was always like um, if I would have listened to them, what would I have done? I would have just sat, stayed and plateaued. And I was just kind of like stuff that like, why can't we do more? Why can't you push more? And so the, like, I, I, I want a battle, you know, like I want, I want them to, you know, think less of me. I want them because I need that. I need that sort of fuel. And, you know, I went and saw, I don't know if it's a psychologist or psychiatrist or one of those a couple of years back, I was trying to decode my head a little bit to figure out like what makes me tick. And he just sort of simply said, mate, you know, you're basically just going from a prove yourself to others mentality to transition to now being able to provide value to the platform, which you now have. Because what you don't want to be is the angry, washed up old dude that's just hating on everything. The way things were and blah blah blah. It's like you don't want you don't want to be that dude. So you know that transition phase has probably just been happening over the last couple of years as well as I've kind of got out of um got out of that and I've had a few wins and you know moved on to the next.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing that interests me is now that you 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 know because your story is amazing and I did watch a a video um, when you had your book that came out and one of the things you were saying to high school students was what what's feeding your fire? Don't put water on your fire. Pour you know, pour petrol, pour gas on the fire and, and give yourself that boost. And it sounds like in a way, that's what those words of that guidance counselor was.
1: It was, it was fuel to really help you get to the next level. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And just being aware of that too. And the, the concept of that was, you know, everyone that's around you at these younger years, they're either going to put water or gasoline on your fire. What is it, you know, and then you need to ask them, you know, are you are you, you know, fueling, my future or are you trying to dampen it it's pretty simple and unfortunately what happens is when you f- when you see that the majority of people are putting water on your fire they got to go you know but
0: mm. well, the interesting thing to me is the attitude is really important of the individual and i think this comes through in what you're saying you know that person that guidance counselor they were pouring water on your dreams and ambitions really but you were able to somehow convert it into petrol to really get it going um, which is because I think that's important for the listeners to realize is that there's going to be negative things that come. But how do you react to them? You know, what happens next? Yeah. Can I come back I to say. one other point? Because um, I'm, I'm just curious with your life, like you, you've been successful. You, you're doing amazing things now. But one of the things that strikes me is with your father passing when you were 15. Um, that must have given you a sense of mortality or, you know, the, the sense that the reality is we're here for a short time. You know, we, we're born, we're alive, and we die. Can you just talk us through? Did that, you know, that's a young age for that to happen. Do you think that has had an influence on
1: your approach in things or or are there other factors? Well, for ages I'd always wondered why do I go so hard? And one of the things that I was thinking about is is the reason that I keep continuing to push, push, push is because I don't have um my dad to be there to say I'm proud of you. You know, like. You know your mother. You can be, you know, an absolute, you know, homeless wreck, but your 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 mom's always still gonna love you. But you know, having you know your dad say you're proud. If I got that, do you think I maybe would I have stopped? Maybe would I have been like, cool, I've made it. I don't need to push anymore. Cool, I don't need to try. You know. And then I, I I thought about it for a bit, and then I realized that, you know, I was walking at nine months old. I've been overachieving my entire life. Absolutely everything I've done, I've totally pushed and crushed and keep going, going, going. So it wasn't, but. Um what it probably did do for me anyway, it just, um, I got, uh, I'd been playing team sports until he passed away. And then after he passed, I kind of just gave up on the team sports because I wanted to do something for myself that I could control and that I could do. And snowboarding gave me that. It was like expression. It was escapism. It was creativity. It was freedom. It was um, acceleration. It was, it was everything. Um, so for me personally, it was kind of like that was, became my, my escape and my freedom. And I just stayed with it. Like I didn't, I just kind of, if I want to go do something like who's to stop me, like who's to say, I can't go and try and do whatever, you know? And so I think if anything, it just made me more committed to the, um, to the escape of what I wanted. Like my whole thing was I wanted to be able to get to the States and snowboard. I wanted to be able to get on a plane, get to America, snowboard. That was like the only thing that mattered. Um, and then I made it happen, traveled the world, and the rest is history.
0: Yeah. The interesting thing to me though is because I think you you won, you know, the silver and you were professional snowboarder,
1: but then you walked away from that as well. What was your thinking behind that? It was super easy, man. I was um, my game plan was get in, blow up, get out, build up as much leverage as I could, build up as much relationships as I can put up everything and then transition into business. That was always, that was always the play. And so before I probably totally peaked in my skill set of ability, I made the decision to retire and it was going to be, so I made the decision to retire before I got the silver medal. I told two people, I told my bro, Mitchie and Nate, and I said, after this, I'm quitting, I'm stopping competing and I'm starting this business and it's going to be an online, you know, snow media company, blah, blah, blah. And they thought I was absolutely nuts. So basically I go, I win, I get you know, I get silver. I come back to New Zealand, and everyone thinks like, "Oh, Rabit's you know going for blah 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 blah," and I'm like, "Cool, I'm out, peace." And I was like, "What? <laughs> what? They, they they could they couldn't believe it, but I knew in my head, I knew exactly what I was doing. And at the start, so many people gave me grief, like um, you know, I w- I wouldn't necessarily say I was a laughing stock, but a lot of people were just like, "Oh, look at Rebet trying to be the businessman, trying to be all business, 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 blah blah." blah. And in my head, I was like, just wait five years, you know, the second one injury, you'll be out second. Next thing that happens, sponsor drops you, you'll be out. And then, you know, it, just like clockwork, mm-hmm. all those had it hated, had sort of, you know, navigated off to the side and done whatever. And, you know, I never wish ill will on any of them, but, um, it was, awesome to see that my strategy had paid off by becoming a platform and being able to, you know, get paid from everyone all at once instead of just one person and being reliant on your, your body and your skill set. And it was getting to a point where, you know, it wasn't fun to almost die every day, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like jumping off a cliff and, and it was getting super good. And don't get me wrong. Like I was, I was good, but I wasn't like, I don't think I was like the greatest ever like, oh, don't get me wrong. Like I could shred and it was fine and it was awesome. And I was, I was good, but I, it wasn't like, you know, this is going to buy me Lamborghinis. Mm-hmm. So my whole thing was how do I transition out safely? And the way I sort of saw it was, well, my writing was at its peak. I want to start a business and then I want to slow crossover. And so I can, and then all of a sudden I don't need to be reliant on my body. And and that's, that's, that's how it played out. And it was probably one of the coolest things that I, um that I managed to do. And Most of these times when you're so ahead of the game with what you're thinking, you're crazy until you're not like everyone thinks you're nuts until you win. And then you're like, oh man, you actually planned that. And it's like, yeah, like for years. (laughs) And so, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to probably have that happen a couple of times now, which has been pretty awesome. Yeah.
0: The interesting thing I pick up on that though, is it's, it's the foresight, isn't it? It's thinking in the, it's the chess game. It's thinking a couple of long interests, mate. 100%. where 100% I love chess yep yeah yeah I, for me it's a similar picture like i the chess idea is you've got to th- be thinking in events you know like several moves ahead but the other thing that i've often thought of is collecting keys and the keys will open doors that are locked so how do you get the key so in my example like i work as a lawyer to me getting a degree was like getting a key that opened a door that would otherwise be shut and it's kind of that mentality isn't it you know putting in the work to then get a key to open something you know but you have to have that vision to be able to
1: go right this is where i'm headed yeah it's chess not checkers i used to play chess a whole bunch when i was younger i was in the chess club i absolutely love chess and i think of all this as life chess you know like mm-hmm. all these moves you know what are you what are you playing for and what's what's that next thing and it also helps as well when you look at the ecosystem with others, and you look at business opportunities, you know, when you start thinking of it like chess, you can sort of start to predict pretty much to the point with what you think is going to happen. And then, you know, navigating to those to those points um, gives you a lot more upside for the win. Mm. So if we take that chess picture, one of the things that I'm, I see that you're,
0: you're doing and, and you talk about it is the fact that helping people is a big part of your ethos and, and what you do now. Um, you know, taking your background, taking your experiences and now trying to do good and help others. How does that, I I guess, what's the motivation behind that? Where does that come from? Um, What does it mean to you to help other people as well? How does that actually translate into practice?
1: Yeah. So it's not like a, um, it's not a conscious thing that I choose to do. I've just always, I've always done it. I, I just kind of think in my head, like, you know if you've got excess and you've got options it's your duty to give that to others like i think about me when i was a young buck and i think of them as breadcrumbs of like little drops of positivity which you can leave around everywhere with you know introductions that you do or or catch-ups or high-fives or meetups or events or learnings or whatever it may be like all those things breadcrumbs that can kind of pivot someone's trajectory by one degree for good you know Mm. like it can be you know and you'll never know how much that degree is going to work in its favor but you know if you pivot someone you know one degree today for good in 10 years time they're going to be in a totally different trajectory and you you're kind of I guess I'm sort of playing you know like generational chess with those relationships and those upsides because I don't know Now, a lot of time I've put time into stuff and I get burnt or I feel like mm. get used or whatever but if as long as there's one person gets one thing out of it that gets them on one degree for better I'm kind of happy with that you know and 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 I'm starting to see the, the the fruits of it now where you know I've done so much stuff for people that I forget I've done and they'll come up to me like oh hey you did so and so and I'll be like oh yeah because for me it's just like it comes in i react i deal with it and i just move on to the next and i just forget about it and so maybe one of the cool things that will hopefully happen in time is you know more of these will come up i'll be like oh yeah that's right i did this thing that helped the person but you know it's never um i don't really keep tabs on any of it if anything i probably forget more than i've probably done but (laughs) you know i like these i like these stories when um you know, not when like legends or whatever pass away, and then there were these crazy stories come out with, oh man, there's this is time he so and so did this. Like it'd be just cool to have a whole bunch of random ones that you even forget that other people don't that made a positive impact on others. And I think that that could be pretty cool. So, you know, maybe I'm just playing a bit of a generational game for for cooler stories of of others. And you know, I think, well, I would hope anyway. With the amount of relationships that I have out there with with a huge array of people, you know, no one knows who's in my circle. I don't. I don't tell anyone who's. Who I talk to, and I don't tell anyone publicly who I'm worth. I don't. I keep kind of, you know, for as public as I am, um, the things that truly matter and the people that truly matter are never are never seen. And I think I think they respect that, and I also respect it because I don't want them to feel like I'm like leveraging them for their profile or their power or their influence. Like I don't ever want. I don't ever want to be questioned on on that. Um, that's why I like everything just kind of. By by design, off the flipping grid. <laughs> so then I can just go do my thing, and then everything else is like you know the ones that that, that matter can can stay um stay in, in silence. And that's kind of I guess how I've sort of navigated. But it, it means a lot for me um, because those back channels that you have and those relationships with those that are influence and power they they can genuinely help people, and they've been able to help people multiple times. And I, I think the more I've realised is you know, the more power and influence, whatever it is that you get, the more good you can do for others, as shitty as it sounds, it's flipping 100% true because when you know those keys to get into those doors, to make those things happen, that's, that's all that matters. And I think the other side of that point too, is they know you're not pissing around. They know what your intent is. They know what you're there to do and they know what, you know, that you, you mean well, and you're trying to do good and usually not for yourself. And I think when you tie all those things up, you kind of become a little bit of an unstoppable force because you're not doing it for you. Do you know what I mean? And so yep. that's where I think hopefully things will probably navigate to in the, in the future. Yeah. Oh, that's
0: awesome. I love that answer. And it, you know, it comes back to that relationships and, and also that that doors may have opened or you've opened doors that you can then crack open for the other people following behind you. And that, you know, you're an example then to others coming along. Um, I, I, I think it's an amazing thing. If like, for example, if you can introduce two people, and they then go off and do something cool. And then you find out about it later through a third channel, you know, and it's like, Oh, wait a minute. How did you guys meet? Well, it was at that lunch you organized, or it was that intro you did. Like that's pretty special, isn't it? Cause then you're being the catalyst to empower more good to be done. Does it, does you've mentioned your Maori heritage? I'm learning more and more about Ta'o Maori. And to me, it's this incredible source of wisdom and strength um, if we talk about words like kaitiakitanga, stewardship or guardianship, you know, that it's not all about you. In the Western conception, it's very often about, well, look at my car, look at my house, look at my bank account. Whereas in Ao Māori, it's a much more holistic view of the world. And actually, you aren't even you in some ways. You represent all the people who've come before you, and you're there to guard and shepherd the people who are coming and helping them. Has that, has that been
1: an influence in some of your thinking as well? So at a start point for years, no, because I was living it and I didn't, um, I was just doing my thing. I didn't realize I was different. I didn't realize, I mean, I knew I was different, but I didn't think of it like um, like culture, culture as an asset or liability. I knew people, like a lot of people gave me shit for being Maori when I was younger and jokes and this and that, but yeah. as I got more into the the business world, I started seeing more of that from the race the race side, um, and not always for good, um, if I was being honest. And then what I've sort of seen in this last little bit is watching the narrative and the, the energy shift around um, those in commerce when it comes to culture. And it's becoming pretty clear that um, what was seen as a liability for many is now essentially one of the biggest assets we have. If you look at the world of you know tech and businesses, everything gets flattened and AI and processing, blah, blah, blah. Like what remains, right? It's creativity, it's brand, it's storytelling, it's care, it's people, it's relationships. So those yeah. those go more to the soft side of things, and definitely leaning more into the cultural side. So, you know, one of the biggest things, I, like I'm very like proudly Maori. Or, you know, like I've always I've always answered the phone since I was 15 years old, saying Kyoto a bit speaking since day one. You know, people gave me shit for starting it, and now it's kind of cool. You know, but I've just done my done my thing. Um, I do feel like like maoridom right now i feel is it's in a pretty risky spot where there's plenty that are wanting to exploit the culture for commerce or exploit the culture for um to tick boxes or exploit the culture to you know to, to just try and position them in a different light in public and all sorts so it's it's quite a dangerous place where it feels maoridom is right now and and obviously i'm you know, I'm on this, this big text chain, which a bunch of other sort of Maori heavy hitters on the space in the tech space. And basically I don't say anything. Why? Because I'm the young buck on the chat and I'm not, it's not my place to say it, you know? So there's always this level of respect for that culture too. So, which I do think is good. Um, but there are some pretty big issues, which I, I hope um, get more embraced by many and, and culture tries to keep control of its own culture and not get it let um let it get exploited by, by others for the wrong thing. So I, I get, I, I'm a little bit more protective of it now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been super proud, like always rock my Greenstone or Maori, or like, it's pretty, pretty, pretty easy. And, and I think it is a bit of a superpower. I think it's awesome. And yeah. the more people that realize that the better. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because you are so involved in commerce and business. Uh, what I'm seeing as a trend is that people are more, having the realization that there is a paradigm shift occurring right now, where in the past people thought about business, they immediately thought about profit. How much can I make for the shareholder? And going forward, it's much more about profit to be sustainable, to fulfill a purpose. There has to be the combination of profit and purpose. And, and when you come and look at EWI-based companies or enterprises, they often will have intergenerational plans Um, which is something that is a much more holistic way of looking at a company or a business rather than just, well, what's the quarterly profit report and how can I sell this thing for the most money to exit?
1: Um, It's a different way of thinking, I think. Well, it's chess, not checkers, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Māoridom and culture are playing chess long game. Mm -hmm. A bunch of these other transactions and commerce is short game checkers, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's pretty simple to see who the... The long game winner is going to be. Um, So, yeah, I I think um, the you know at the end of the day, for most of the businesses driven on profit is is around shareholders, right? And so, I think when the voice of the shareholders become you know tweaks enough where people actually buy into what they're they're wanting to say, then then I think business will change. But until then, that there's a fundamental shift in what the outputs of what success could be like, whether it's quarterly earnings or whatever nothing will change until that does. So, you know, you always follow the money and you can usually figure out what's going on pretty quick. Mm. But I think people like you have
0: a role to play as well to talk about this more. And, um, you know, that that purpose is a key part as well. When when you come to invest or you're looking at a business, how you can support them, um, what are the type of things that you're looking for? Or, um, yeah, how do you go about supporting an entrepreneur coming up?
1: I, I usually try and shortcut to the quickest way for them to make a ninja move. I call them ninja moves, right? Like um, usually they'll be so stuck in the little bubble. They haven't zoomed out to actually think of, you know, who's the smart partnership, like who's the smart partnership, which they could do. Whereas, you know, have they actually looked into what currently exists in the market? Have they thought about talking to, because as soon as you do a ninja move, you can think about who you actually need to talk to. And that's just a person. And as long as you've got the relationship with the person, you can get to them. So I always just think about ninja moves, like the fastest way possible, as soon as possible to get them 10x, 100x, whatever. Because when you've got the game cracked, I'm still only i I'm only on thirty six now, but I know that you know if I was fifty six and I've been in the game for you know another twenty years, regardless what business or vertical comes in front of my way, I can pretty much know who'd be able to talk to and plug them into. Like, oh yeah, well, and then you obviously you've got to go through. You can have the connection, which is easy, but then you got to go through due diligence to make sure it's the right sort of play, is it the right fit, is there, you know, all the rest of it. That stuff comes later. But yeah, I go straight to the kill of like, what is the fastest way to get the quickest win right now? Cool. And and what and what is you know, what is something that no one else has really thought of? Let's do that. You know, because I think when you just copy paste others, you don't really make progress. When you're genuinely you know creative and authentic and brave enough to who you are to do something a bit differently that's when you get a bunch more disproportional upside Mm. yeah
0: that's good and you mentioned relationship there as being really key you know knowing who to call on knowing who to introduce to I can't even ask how many people you would have met in your lifetime but I'm guessing it's tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands you know Can you describe your sense of when you first meet someone, can you tell, is it, is is those first five seconds, can you tell, how much can you tell from that versus sort of the, the longer term getting to know people? I'm just curious about that as someone who's met a lot of people.
1: Yeah, so I'm kind of insanely lucky where I can pretty much remember like every person I've ever met, I can pretty much remember their face. I won't remember the name as such, but I remember the face and the energy. And like, perfect example, I was at the gym the other day and um, I sat down as a dude next to me. And I literally remembered him from like a year and a half ago we met and he was, you know, he's into like Greenstone stuff, whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, hey, yeah, I forget your name. But yeah, we met, you're talking about the Greenstone, blah, blah, blah. And he just like, couldn't believe that I'd remembered him. But in my head, I was like, no, no. Cause I remembered like the moment and I can, so IQ wise, I'm not that smart, I'd say, um, you know, failed high school, couldn't get into university, but EQ smart, I feel I'm pretty flipping epic, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I can roll into a room and I can pretty much like read and decode. And because I've got this, I love the chess thing too. Mm. I can then go into their mind a little bit to be like, okay, my perfect example is last Wednesday, some stuff's going on with this other business. And I was on the phone call about it. It as a bit of a, like a code read emergency for a friend of mine. And I was just looking at it and I said, you know what? If I'm then in this moment for what their world is, this is how I'd see it. And this is what I think I'd do next. And then honestly, 48 hours later, they announced the launch of this next little thing and we flipping and called it. And everyone was like, how did you pick that? And I was like, dude, you can kind of see it. So the way I kind of think about it is I'll just put my energy into theirs. I'll see the world out as if I was them. But then i put the layer on of like how they roll what's their moral and ethical compass what the energy is like where's their mm-hmm. where's their skill set and that's how i kind of put it that way but yeah basically i can roll up um probably like eight to nine times out of ten i can basically get a read on someone like real quick it's been yeah. a lot harder through COVID and stuff because everything's been on um you know obviously on like screens and you can't feel the person in the energy and mm-hmm. one of my biggest weaknesses and strengths was that, you know, my biggest strength is usually if I'm physically in the room and my energy can come with me, but to be able to try and make these calls from, you know, through screens of, I've, I've definitely probably stuffed up a lot more remotely. Um, yeah. That's probably been, been I probably haven't had the as good of a read. So I mean, I'm getting better slowly, but um, yeah, I'd say, you know, 80 to 90% I can pretty much read, you know, you can read the energy of someone wants something real quick. You can read the energy if someone's not fully been honest, you can read the energy, the way they talk about others. You can, you know, like all that stuff super easy. You know, yeah. Watch, watch how they talk about others. Watch how they talk about themselves. Watch how they, you know, how they interact with others. You know, a, a big ones. You know, I I look for the small things. You know, like, do you, you know, do you look the waiter in the eye and say say what's up and ask them? Do you open the door for the lady as you're coming out? Do you like just these small stupid things, but I think you can tell a lot about about someone. And I think probably the good thing from my side now is there is so much of me out there where it would be impossible for me to fake, fake it. Like there's just <laughs> too much. You can't, you can't fake the amount of stuff that I've sort of put out. So in some ways I kind of feel like more like open for all of it because um, I feel already pretty exposed and transparent anyway. Like I yeah. obviously stuff up and a whole bunch, whatever, but for the, for the most part, yeah, 80 to 90%. I can pretty much read within the first minute. Yeah. After I ask the first question, I can pretty much already pick pick it. I can usually pick where they sit in the ecosystem, what they're potentially after, what their vibe is, who they may know. And then the good news is because when you get to a point you pretty much know everyone anyone in the back channels anyway, you can just do a self-cred check. And this is something that I've, I've realized is you send a text to someone with their name and you just like GC, yes or no? cred check stealth, And then if they reply back and said, we should talk, that means that it's a no go. Or if it's like legend, they're a legend. And so what many people don't realize is before someone interacts with you, if they're going to do something, they've probably asked around and you better hope like hell that you haven't pissed off too many people because um, (laughs) they will come back to buy you. And I've seen it it happen many, many, many times. So that's what I would like. I like the idea of if you're going to mess with me, you've probably already, you already know what I look like, talk like, sound like, you either like me or you don't, you know, I can execute. The only thing you're trying to figure out is if you can trust me. And then you ask around and you have a chat. And the majority of the time, if someone's coming for a first banter and it's going to be potential business, they've already done the rest of the due diligence. They're just trying to figure out if they can trust me or not.
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, and I love what you're saying as well, because to me, in a way, thinking back to what, how we started the conversation you know, your childhood growing up in a multi-ethnic, very different environment in Fiji. But then you've also lived in Japan. And I know I lived in Japan for five years. And I think I learned a lot from the Japanese way of doing things, which is very, it's a very subtle way of doing things, but they will have meetings with people and they'll get a sense. And because they're often consensus-based, consensus driven. So I worked at a trading house called Mitsui in Tokyo for two years. And I was I think there was eight or nine of us who were foreigners, and there was 5000 Japanese people in the building. So it was an amazing environment. But I learned so much from that. And I think it's helped me to realize that that empathy, or that asking some questions and drawing people out to understand their perspectives, before you say something is actually can be really a useful tool. And it sounds like because you've had so many experiences with different cultures and different ways of being, you're able to project yourself into the skin of the other person, which then gives you a bit of a superpower to really know, well, this is probably what they're angling
1: for. Yeah. And it can become pretty lethal, pretty quick. I mean, but the the best thing I love is if I, when I can stand into a room and, when the other side genuinely knows you need nothing from them and you need nothing from them you can actually have an actual honest authentic conversation and the relationship gets a lot deeper a lot quicker because there is no game being played you think about the majority of other games there's always leverage or money or someone's got something that you want there's always a there's always a game being played and i think when you can like genuinely like exist and communicate and interact with people and they know that you don't need anything from them and you don't care and you're just genuinely saying what you think, how you think it, and why you think it, the level of respect gets so much quicker, so much faster, because you may disagree on points, but at least you you respect the others for being up front, saying how they feel and and what they believe and why. And I think that's such a powerful thing. Like, I love the fact that now, regardless who I'm in the room with, I can, there is no other agenda. It's like, I'm just going to say and do my thing. You're going to do your thing. It is what it is. If it pops, sweet. If not, next. You know, and it's, it's not, it's... It, It gets so much simpler (laughs) when there's no power in the way, you know, like, or there's no leverage from the other side, like life gets so easy. You know, it's not like they're a client you're trying to win over and you're doing the fake lunch, rah, rah, you know, it's like stuff that, you know, like I just, life's too short to piss around with that stuff for me. I just, I can't do it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. 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 No, that's really good. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about chess and the long game and playing the long game. Um, I One of the things, one of the pictures that I find really helpful when I'm thinking about my own life and how I'm using my time and what it is that I invest in is this concept of planting seeds of trees, knowing that you won't sit in the shade because you're playing that intergenerational, you know, 30 years a hundred years from now, what are the things that I'm doing? Can you just describe, because often in the first half of life, we're very concerned about what our CV says, you know, what qualifications we've got, what job we've got, that type of thing. The second half of life is often about what will people say when I'm no longer here? Um, can you just reflect maybe, and we're drawing to an end of the interview, just thinking about um, you know, what is it when you get to the end of your life, what is it that you want people to reflect
1: back and, and remember about who you were? So one of my biggest drivers now that I had, I've said it multiple times, is it's um, a fear of future regret. So one of my biggest drivers is to be old and be like, oh, man, I should have, could have, would have, man, I wish I would have, dot, 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 or try. And that's why I just try and give everything a go. I don't, I don't care. I'm like, stuff it. Let's give it a crack. Like if it doesn't pop sweet, but you know, if it doesn't, I'll be the first one out in the public lines that are like, yep, that didn't work. You know? So I'm, I'm, I'm ruthlessly fearless around trying because I'd rather deal with the public scorn of many for failing than like the private, you know, like in of that, that like just builds up like resentment against myself for not being brave enough to try, yeah. you know, so that's it. Cause at the end, you know, and as far as the long game is, you know, people don't realize, but now we've converted into this world of digital and social and stuff. Like I always think about like my children's children will be looking at my Facebook stream mm. from when I was their age. Every, what I was thinking, what I was saying, where I was going, what I was doing, like my digital footprint of who I am as a, as a being will be so imprinted. And so thing that, you know, nuggets of gold may last for centuries you know, there'll be, there'll be, might be snippets that people be, you know, this could be watched in like hundreds of years time, literally on another planet and being like, man, how crazy was my great, great, great granddad. The dude was nuts or like the dude was, you know, whatever it may be. Like that's possible. Like if if now I could see, you know, my grand granddad and grandma, like Ron and Betty, absolute legends who I was named after, man, if I could look at a, like a visual time stream of them at like, 15, 17, 20 traveling the world, like what they thought, what they thought about, you know, politics and space and, uh, you know, religion and people and community and society and currency. Like, you know, we've been able to basically that. So I think of it like I've basically, I'm documenting my existence for generations that I'll never meet. So if you're watching, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I yeah, love yeah, that. It's a different, it's a, it's a different game. I'm just, I don't know, man, I'm just playing a different game.
0: Yeah, no, it's a different perspective for sure. And I think that that's the thing that's what I've taken from the interview is having, having that long-term perspective and embracing it and not shying away from it. Cause too often, particularly in the West, it is a very short term limited thing. If anything, we're making a year plan. It's very rare to make a decade plan or a life plan um, and that's really what we're talking about. Um, I've, I love family history, so I've researched my grandparents, and then I've gone back the next generation and stuff, and um, cool. my great-great-grandfather wrote a book in, like, 1865 about his trip to Europe, and so I've got this little, you know, time capsule of this person existed. I'm directly related. Never, ever met him, obviously, But it is a little bit like that with what we're producing today. And with the podcast Seeds that I'm doing, um, this will be about episode 265 or so. And I'm archiving it up with the New Zealand library. So it's like a digital record as well. And I figure at some point, someday, you're right, 100 years from now, maybe, somebody's going to listen to this and go, wow, that's what they were talking about back in 2021. That's, That's interesting. So yeah, it's that long game thinking, isn't it?
1: hundred percent hundred percent yeah
0: well Robert it's been great to talk with you I really appreciate your time um, we've connected across time zones and and continents to be able to do this but I really appreciate your sharing with us about your childhood you know the, the habitat for humanity days in Fiji you know I think that type of influence affects people in ways that um, come out later in life and then you know talking through your childhood, your um, teenage years, the influence of that guidance counselor who fueled your fire, the influence of your father's um, passing and then through to the idea of a chess game and planning for the future. Um, So I'm really um, grateful to you for your time. I'm watching and and I'll be watching and seeing what else you get involved in um, and also how you can continue to empower people coming up behind um, and, and seeing an example. Is there any ways that you'd like to let people know about how to reach out and or, or follow you. And I know you did a book a couple of years ago, you know, how can they access more about what you're up to?
1: Yeah. The simplest way is just, um, Rebecca.com, just R-E-B-E-T-T.com. Um, it's got a bunch of my stuff there. You know, I've got some free, you know, business education courses to help with, you know, social media and LinkedIn and, and digital blueprints and, um, LinkedIn, I do a bunch of content and my kind of thing is, you know, if I can, create value to help, you know, scale value to others. And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of my thing. And, you know, the business stuff always figures itself out, but fingers and lots of pies and, you know, it's been working out, pretty good so far. So um, it's been pretty good. So I definitely appreciate the time. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Rebecca. For me, there were several things
0: that stood out. And I thought it was really interesting that what seems to motivate him is the challenge of being told that something isn't possible. Make sure you check out the link in the show notes to his website. And there's heaps and heaps of videos that he's produced. And he's interviewed heaps of people as well. If you enjoyed this, then why not share it with a friend and check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog. Until next time.